Love Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the state bird is the pelican and the state tree is the bald cypress, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, whose state bird is the mockingbird and the state tree is the pine. Thank you for joining us for Episode 12. State of California versus Kevin Cooper. Tonight we'll be discussing the case against Cooper for the 1983 murders of Doug and Peggy Ryan, their daughter Jessica, and family friend Chris Hughes. The Ryan's son Josh, who was eight years old, was the only survivor in the attack. For the first part, we're going to be discussing the case. Uh, We're going to be covering the case in two episodes. And the first part is going to be about the investigation and arrest of Cooper, his trial, and early appeals up to his request for DNA testing, which he made in 2001. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And how are you doing tonight, Michael? I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty excited about this case, you know, just looking over the Wikipedia page and seeing some stuff on it. Like, this this is pretty uh, dastardly, and this dude uh, sounds like he deserves to be on death row, even though a lot of people are actually fighting for him to uh, be off of it. That is correct. He's had some uh, zealous advocates. Uh, Even at his trial, which, of course, his trial counsel has been criticized, but uh, uh, he did everything he could, which we'll discuss later on in the show, uh, to try to uh, focus attention away from Cooper and onto other suspects in the case. Right, right. And while I'm thinking about it, before we get started on Cooper, I do want to mention, I saw something today. I follow Investigative Discovery or Investigate Discovery on Facebook, and I saw something interesting about Jody Arias. I believe it's her trial lawyer was blaming her for him having cancer. Have you seen that? I I caught part of it last night. I was uh, I was studying Cooper, and I meant to stop at 10 o'clock and watch that. It's called In Defense Of on Investigation Discovery. 
um, and I kind of lost track and ended up only catching the last part. But yeah, he's he's. Uh, I think he's kind of implying the the stress of. He was stuck with her for about four years. He wanted to get uh-huh. off the case and could not get off the case. Um, and either the court wouldn't let him off or uh, Jody Arias wrote letters to the court saying you can't let him off. It's so important that, you know, he continue to represent me. So he was stuck with her. And then he he got a lot of blowback from the defense um, tactics at the trial. Right. And, of course, a lot of people thought, you know, how can you believe a word this woman says when she's, you know, she's so openly lied about so many things um, to put any any credence into any of her stories about domestic violence or Travis's alleged uh, interest in young children. And right, so, yeah, he right. faced a lot of blowback. As he should, I think. In this day and age, now you know you 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 have a lot of media access to courtrooms all over the U.S. And defense right. attorneys need to start maybe thinking: if I do this in front of the cameras, and I can't prove it, and I don't think it's so much zealously representing your client it's zealously representing your client by putting forth theories that have absolutely no basis in fact or are uncorroborated by any proof and are you know the invention of a person who is a known liar so I I don't know I mean I, I don't think I don't think people should have been sending him death threats I don't think people should send Brady Arias death threats. You know, let him do his job. That's, you know, part of the system that we have. Let him zealously represent her. Because sometimes all these backdoor antics that go on on both sides can end up jeopardizing the, the conviction if an appellate court says, oh, no, you know, this is this was wrong. So she has also mm-hmm. filed a 352-page appellate brief. And that was, I think, right. last week. So, um, It'll be interesting to see what happens with that going forward. I know we're already in talks to do a uh, follow-up episode on Jody, so it'll definitely Correct. be interesting to continuing to uh, watch that going forward. And what ends up happening with that situation? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she's right where she belongs, but, you know. Oh, yeah. To uh, certain other individuals, a lot of people, some people think that she belongs out on the streets, and she was just defending herself. I'm not quite sure I understand how, but let's talk about Kevin. Right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, yeah, let's... Let's move on to Kevin Cooper. Ma'am, well, let's start off with his victims, the uh, Ryan family. Let's start off with that and uh, move on from there. Uh, interesting stuff about them, you know. They just hate to see stuff like that happen. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Doug and Peggy, I believe that they met while they were uh, training as chiropractors. Uh, right. Peggy's mother was also a very uh, a very successful chiropractor in the Orange um, Orange County area, I believe. And she had a home in Chino Hills, which is in San Bernardino County. Uh, and that was actually, yeah, that area, um, the area where the Ryan house was and the Lease house were horse country. A lot of the people right. there had, um, the Ryan sold, trained, and show showed Arabian horses. Okay. Which are, um, you know, kind of the, the foundation of modern thoroughbreds. And I think some other, like, quarter horse and, and Morgan breeds. And Arabians, if you go on YouTube and look at video of Arabians, I mean, they're gorgeous horses. Uh, they are very, uh, their carriage, the way they carry themselves and their tails, They when they're running or walking, they flick that tail up in the air. And uh-huh. uh, they're really majestic looking horses. And a lot of people in that, in that part of Chino Hills had horses. Uh, but the Ryans were chiropractors and they had two children, Jessica, who was 10, and Josh, who was 8. And on the night, evening of June 4th, they went to a barbecue at uh, a friend's house, and, you know, several people were there. And while they were there, a friend of Josh's by the name of Christopher Hughes got permission from his parents to stay the night at the Ryan house. So between 9 and 9.30, the Ryans and Chris left the barbecue and came home. And apparently shortly after coming home, everybody went to bed. Uh, Josh and Chris were in Josh's room. Jessica was in her room. And Mr. and Mrs. Ryan, Dr. Dr. and Dr. Ryan were in their bedroom, their master bedroom. Uh-huh. Um, so that was... That was uh, that was the family. Rich, like I said, they they were in the sanctity of their own home. Right. Nobody expects to, you know, you expect to be safe in your own home. Correct. Correct. Now, one thing in that area, and this was 1983. Um, uh-huh. I don't think a lot of people didn't lock their doors. And they left right. keys in their cars. I mean, it, it was, that was not something. I lived in New Orleans. That was not something I did. But um, they would leave keys in the cars and doors unlocked uh, as a matter of, you know, routine. So uh, Right. And let's be honest. I was still, what, seven years away from being born. So, you know, hey, I wasn't worried yeah, about locking Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I was one year out of high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. You so, have been around for a minute. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. 
I this was yeah, this was um I think I was in New Orleans and I was actually working and okay. not going to school at that time. So okay. yeah, I had been around for a minute. <laughs> well, this wasn't Cooper's first crime. I believe in seventy seven he was arrested for burglarizing a home in Pittsburgh of all places. Is that correct? Right. He had he was from Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, he was born and his mother gave him up for adoption and he was adopted by uh a family and renamed Kevin Cooper. Mhm. And he has been in trouble with the law in in some form or fashion since the age of about 7. Okay, so he's had a very troubled, you know, path. Correct. You know, the thing I don't understand is that his family loved him. He claims abuse. Uh-huh. But there's nothing that corroborates any of his claims of abuse. His family loved him. Oh. They supported him. Um, he had some artistic talent, but he preferred you know, burglarizing homes and stealing cars. And he was apparently pretty severely injured in a car accident as a juvenile when he stole a car and he was fleeing police. And he had also, every time he, he was one, and and this kind of has a parallel to Damien Eccles. When he got into trouble, he would claim to have mental issues. He would claim to have hallucinations and headaches. Then he would be put into a mental, and it's easier to escape from those. And so he had escaped uh, 11 different facilities by the time he came to California. Right, right. So in late 82... He fled to California after escaping from the psychiatric facility, but he was then convicted on two more burglaries, surprise, surprise, in L.A. Correct. Correct. Did he come up with the, did he, where did the alias come from? The alias, apparently, I believe he stole the identification in another burglary. Mm-hmm. And when he was arrested in L.A. County, he was carrying that identification. And so he went through the L.A. County court system, not as Kevin Cooper, who was a fugitive from the burglary and rape charges and abduction charges uh, and kidnapping and assault charges in Pennsylvania. Not, as, But he went through the system as David Troutman, who prob- may have had a minor criminal record, but nothing that would be that would raise any red flags. Right. Uh, right absolutely. No, and no there had burglaries and all that stuff. Well, you know, he may have had, like I said, he may have had some minor criminal records, but not the history of escape and not the pending charges in Pennsylvania or anything that would have resulted in him being shipped back to Pennsylvania. And there's been some controversy over the years 
as to how the California Department of Corrections had someone like Cooper serving under an assumed name and how the court system had someone like Cooper going through it under an assumed name and nobody figured out because he was arrested in L.A. County for the burglaries in January of 83. Uh He checked in at at, uh, California Institute for Men, which is a prison in Chino, in April of 1983. So that's four months that his fingerprints never never raised any bells, rang any bells or raised any alarms. And then he was in Chino... Uh, he was in Chino in, you know, initial evaluation, and then he was transferred from one dorm to another, and then he finally was transferred to the minimum security area mm-hmm. on June 1st. The day after he was transferred to minimum security, he walked out through a hole in a fence. Yeah, that's... And if you, uh, if you hear him tell it... If you hear him tell it, if that hole hadn't been in that fence, he never would have escaped from Chino, which I don't buy. (laughs) I think if there hadn't been a hole in the fence, he would have made a hole. Yeah, he would already uh, already escaped from Pennsylvania. Why not not mm -hmm. think that he probably escaped from, you know, the freaking... uh, California Institute for Men. The thing is, two things that bother me. Number one, how in the hell do they not have at least, like, something closing that hole or something temporary to make sure nobody escapes? It's a prison. (laughs) You know, that is a good question. At the time, however... um, I think that California, California, of course, has always been somewhat on the more progressive side of things mm-hmm. and thinking. And it, even when it comes to their penal institutions, um, they uh, they didn't have any kind of towers or any observers on the fences. Uh, you know, I I don't think it was a challenge to escape from the minimum security because the day Cooper escaped, another inmate from Chino also escaped and a uh, kid being held in the juvenile facility, which was uh, nearby also escaped. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. And it ended up uh, this yeah, they're more progressive. I mean, you know, they, they I'm sure there are some California lawmakers that if they could send people to bed without their supper, uh, they would, you know, be perfectly happy doing that rather than putting them in prison. Um, so, uh, well, but that ended up, but Chino, uh, they did, they did up their security after that. And this um, is the same took a lot of, actually, I'm so... This is the same state, not to interrupt you, that actually killed another man, Tukey uh, Williams. So, I mean, it's surprising, you know, to think this is a state that does have an active death penalty, but they also have holes in the fences. 
Right. Well, they it, they do have an active death penalty, but their last execution was in 2006. So um, okay, yeah, they're, they're not like they're you. they're a little bit like Arkansas. They they, of course, everybody's now challenging the method. Uh, that's a topic for another show. Is that you know anti death penalty uh, advocates got the drug companies to stop selling drugs to prisons to be used in executions. And so now the prisons have to find other ways to obtain those drugs. And pretty soon they're not going to be able to obtain drugs and they're going to go back to electric chairs and gas chambers. And Oh, you know. I, yeah. I'm not so, so sure about that, Lisa. I, unfortunately, I think that it's actually going to go the other way and you know, we may be seeing the dying days of the death penalty. I, I no, I don't think. I, I think in some states, I could see some states abolishing it, but especially here in the South, no. I, I just don't see it, especially not in Texas or uh, Texas, Florida, Arkansas, or Alabama. Uh, yeah, Alabama, places like that, I could see keeping it. But, you know, yeah. far more progressive states like California, you know, everything on the West Coast, I could see it going away with fairly quick timing, you know, within the next 10 years. But that's like well, said, a debate for another time. California voters had that option a couple years ago, and they, they voted for the um, – the the proposition that would streamline death penalty appeals, not abolish the death penalty. Wow. So, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Cooper, after he walked away, he was observed by a prison officer, and but he was uh-huh. able to go through uh, a lumber yard, and he hid in the lumber yard for a period of time. And then he was able to go over several fences and through several adjoining properties uh, until he had gotten away from the prison. And that was when he came on upon the hideout house, which was owned by a gentleman by the name of Lees and then two brothers by the name of Lang. So it's generally referred to as the Lees slash Lang hideout house. Uh-huh. Uh, he found a garage door uh, partially open. He went into the garage. Door into the house was open. He went into the house. He scouted it out, confirmed nobody was there. And then he went into the house. This was on June 2nd. And he hid out on June 2nd. Right. Uh, he slept in a closet so that he would not be seen. He uh, kept his, uh, like if he was watching TV, he put the TV on the floor so that nobody could see the light uh, from the TV through the windows. He used flashlights in the house rather than turning on the lights. Um, This was a rental house. It was a house used uh, for employees of whatever operations Lisa and Lang were running. I guess, you know, ranching, farming, 
uh, probably ranching type operations on their land. Um, and also, while he was in the house, he called girlfriends in both Pennsylvania and L.A. County, seeking help to escape from California. The uh, the woman in Pennsylvania flat out said, no, I'm not helping you, because he told her he walked away from prison. And um, she said, no, I'm not helping you. Turn yourself in. The L.A. County girlfriend said, oh, I'd like to help you, but I don't have any money. And right. so then he called her back, and she still didn't have any money. So this is when he realized someone had been on the 3rd during the day. Uh, Mrs. Lease had come to the house to pick up a sweater or something that she'd left behind. And she came in the house. He was in the bathroom. He hid in the bathroom. I I was a little surprised that he didn't come out and kill her. But um, he hid in the bathroom until she left. And that was when when he realized, I can't stay here any longer. And I believe this was actually on the 4th, about 10 or 11 a.m. in the morning. And so then he waited around after dark, and um, he claims that he started hitchhiking to Mexico, but everything that happened at the Ryan house says otherwise. Um, The weapons that were used in the Ryan and Hughes murders came from the Lee Lang house. There was Uh a hatchet that was kept by a fireplace and a knife, and there were some other ice pick and knives missing from the house. And, of course, that he had been there wasn't really discovered immediately upon discovery of the bodies. Uh, But sometime after everyone went to bed, they had probably had time to fall asleep because the crime scene evidence indicates that both Doug and Peggy were in their bed and there is evidence on their pillows that they were struck while they were lying down in bed. Uh-huh. Um, they had severe, they both had severe head injuries. It looks like Doug was able to get out of bed, but not do much else. Peggy was able to get out of bed and away from the bed, but then it, it it looks like Cooper got her and attacked her and killed her not far from the bed. And with the head injuries, you know, nobody was probably thinking clearly enough. They had guns. They had a gun in the closet and they had a gun in a nightstand. So with the head injuries, their brains probably were not, you know, were not working in get the gun from the nightstand and shoot. More like, you know, fight or flight, and flight was what they were, you know, what they chose. Um, And apparently after the attack on Doug and Peggy, Jessica entered the room and she was attacked next. 
her body was found in the hallway just outside the master bedroom door. Right. And this is Jessica, correct? Correct. Jessica. She was 10 years old. And then after that, Josh and Chris had heard screaming um, from their parent, from Josh's mom and dad's room. And they had gotten up to kind of investigate. And then they'd gone and hidden in the laundry room. And then I guess Chris, the you know, wanting to know what was going on, got the better of him. And he went into the master bedroom. And Josh had said he heard Chris yelling for him and um, screaming. So Jessica, Doug and Peggy are dead. Jessica said, now Chris goes in the bedroom and Chris is killed. And finally, Josh goes to the master bedroom, uh, walks in the door, and he says he was hit in the back of the head, and that was it. Uh, He had multiple wounds. He had serious head injuries. His throat had been cut. The only reason he survived is because he had the presence of mind to put his fingers into the wound to stop the bleeding Mm -hmm. on his neck. Which and is crazy. Uh, he, he think about that. One of the one of the things that uh, Cooper's advocates, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit more, but I just want to kind of comment on it right now. Cooper was six feet tall and probably medium average build. He wasn't incredibly stocky but he also was not a telephone pole. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't take much for one person to individually attack and kill three young children, a kill two and attempt to kill the third. Um, also, he used a blitz attack. He blitzed just uh, Peggy and Doug Ryan in their beds while they were asleep. Um, that's not a hard thing for one person to do, especially someone who is Cooper's size. Right. So, uh, you know, to to say that one person could not have killed all five people is just uh, ridiculous. Especially with them being asleep. You see constant stories of it on the news where... You know, people, all families are slayed while they're sleeping in their house. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, we, so, can, we can talk about that. Yeah, we can talk about that aspect a little bit more. I've got more to say on yeah. it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's not, like, it, it's not like there's any chance that it's completely impossible for him to have uh, – done that that would be uh Correct. i think that would be a little i i would be hesitant to say it would be impossible for him uh to have done that or for him to have not been able to do that by himself right uh, right you know, the thing is you know after this cooper obviously uh takes off you know Correct. Uh, I guess he realizes what he had done, and he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. um, 
he actually stopped and grabbed a beer from the fridge in the Ryan's kitchen. Oh my God! And You're then, kidding. yeah, uh, just one. He only took one beer. Okay, he was thirsty. Oh, what a great guy! And then he made his way back to the lease house because he's probably covered in blood. Um, right. So he makes his way back to the lease house so that he can clean up. Um, not quite sure how he got back. He 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 may have taken the. It's kind of not clear. There was a beer can found in a plowed training field on the Ryan property that was between uh-huh. the Ryan house and the lease house. Um, so I'm speculating that he probably went back to the lease house, got himself cleaned up, and then came back to the Ryan's and took their station wagon. And the reason that we know that he went back to the lease house and cleaned up is because hair consistent with Jessica was found in the bathroom sink. Hair consistent with Doug Ryan was found in the shower drain. There was luminol um, showing blood spatter on the shower about two to between two and five feet from the floor. Um, uh-huh. and there were was a, a footprints luminol showed on the carpet between the bedroom that Cooper had been sleeping in and the bathroom going from the bathroom back to the bedroom with you know bloody footprints uh, Cooper's foot impression was also found on the sill of the shower uh huh so that ties, plus in, in addition to the weapons taken from the Lee's house, ties the Lee's Lang house to the Ryan murders. Right, right. Now, where and, uh, Long so Long Beach is in California. Right. Yeah. Where it, is that tied Well, it is southwest of Chino Hills. Um. It is on the route toward Tijuana. Long Beach is actually a pretty major port in the Los Angeles County area. Um, When Cooper was in jail in L.A. County, he actually had some um, roommates who were also from Long Beach. And they had a girlfriend in L.A. County as well. So... He had some ties to Long Beach, and he probably had somebody in Long Beach that he thought he could go to for help. So he drove the Ryan vehicle to Long Beach. Um, It was actually two or three days before the vehicle was reported to police. However, a witness placed flyers on and in the vehicle on June 5th, sometime between 10 and 11 in the morning. So that puts the the vehicle in Long Beach June 5th before the bodies are discovered. Right. In a church parking lot in Long Beach. And the other, the the poignant part of this, the murders were discovered by Chris Hughes' father. Mm Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to that. He's the one who had to find his kid 
Yes. Um, Chris was supposed to be home in time to go to church on Sunday. Um, he was very active in the Catholic Church. He was an altar boy, I believe, or he he served at Mass. I'm Protestant, so I'm not quite sure um, what the proper terminologies are. But um, so he was very, you know, his family were devout Catholics, and when Marianne Hughes could not get through by phone. She went by, and it looked like nobody was home because the the station wagon was gone. Nobody answered the doors. About 11.30, she started getting concerned because this wasn't like the Ryans. And um, it wasn't like Chris. And that's when Bill Hughes went over, and he, the first thing that was stood out is that the house was locked up. And so then he went around to see if he could get into the house some way. And at the master bedroom, sliding glass doors leading into the master bedroom is when he saw the bodies and uh, everybody laying on the floor in the bedroom. Uh, He couldn't get the sliding door open, and so he went around and kicked in the kitchen door and made entry to the house. He apparently had to go to a neighbor to call uh, police. And the police call was at 12.57 p.m. Okay. So the the car is in Long Beach a good two hours before the murders are even discovered. Right, right. And the and theory is that that's part, of, that's part of Cooper's motive to get the car and buy time to be able to get away. Before anybody right. knows the car. Correct. He checked into Tijuana uh, around 4.30 on June 5th under the name Angel Jackson. By the way, I would just like to establish that is so cliche to try to flee to Mexico. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think um, it, if I recall correctly, um, in the 1980s, a lot of people believe that Mexico would not extradite anybody back to the United States. Uh-huh. And there, you know, there are so a few other countries in the world. Right. Well, I, I, I think um, Kevin Cooper is one of those people that obviously never considers the consequences if he's caught. Right. And I think that he's he's manipulative, and so he thinks he can manipulate his way out. Eleven times before, claiming mental issues and being sent to a mental hospital has worked for him. So, so hey, why not uh, but yeah, Let's try this again. Yeah, right. So he went to Tijuana, and then... Uh, a couple of days later, he made his way to Ensenada, and that's where he met uh, a guy by the name of Owen Handy and his wife, Angelica, who had a boat, the Isla Tica, um, and they offered him a job and food and a place to sleep if he would help them paint their boat. Right. Once the painting job was done, 
He gets on the boat because they're going to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess Mexico really was not to his taste. He didn't speak Spanish. Maybe he didn't like the right. food. Maybe he, he didn't know what he was going to drink. Right. He maybe didn't know what he was going to drink because he can't drink the water. And um, Right. And in the 1980s, this was especially true. Because I remember it was still called Montezuma's Revenge. Right. Um, you've probably never heard of that, have you? I have. So he, you know, oh, yeah. Okay, uh, good. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, interesting. Well, no need to say no more. Say no more. Anyone who's seen <laughs> Sex in the City movie um, can get an idea. It happened to Charlotte. So uh, he gets on the Andy's boat, and they're sailing up the California coast, and they end up uh, stopping in Santa Barbara or near Santa Barbara. Uh, it's around and July 30th by this time. He rapes the woman at knife point. Yeah, instead of keeping a low and, profile, because let's be honest, he probably, for all intents and purposes, you can assume he made a pretty clean getaway, you know. He was pretty right. much gone. Right. But no, he can't, uh, like I said, he he does not consider consequences. And I I honestly believe in all that I've read, he does not contemplate getting caught. Right. So he tries to rape this woman at knife point. She reports it. Uh, this was in the harbor in, I think it was Pelican Bay. So, of course, the U.S. Coast Guard, my father was in the Coast Guard, yay, Coast Guard. Uh, they end up arresting him after he dives off the Isla Tica swims to a dinghy, pulls himself into the dinghy, and tries to row for shore. Right. That was his right. getaway plan. Oh, Lord. So, and I, and I think getaway plans go. <laughs> right. Um, and I think what happened was he committed the rape. She knew he was on the Isla Tica, and so when she reported it, I think the Isla Tica may have been on its way out, or at least moored away from shore, not at a dock. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, on January, on July thirtieth, nineteen eighty-three, Cooper is arrested and returned right. to San, uh, San Bernardino County. Now, the murders occurred late, late June fourth, early, early June fifth. It's now July thirtieth. And Cooper has been in the wind all this time. Yeah, seven weeks. It says that he went on the he was on the run before he was Correct. finally uh, subsequently arrested without you know without a problem. So you look Correct. at it here, and they, I believe, I saw where they automatically zoned in that Kevin Cooper was the likely killer. I, I mean, as soon as he's picked up for this rape, is it pretty much, you know, boom, boom, he's headed off to San Bernardino County? You got, well, you got to remember, actually, when he was picked up for the rape, it was under the name Angel Jackson. Oh, yeah. Because that was the alias he was using on the boat. 
Now, I think, though, after, soon after his arrest by the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard figured out they had Kevin Cooper. Right. Probably through fingerprints. And back in 1983, there... Right. Well, I in, in defense of California and Pennsylvania and every other state, in the 1980s, I don't think that there was a national fingerprint database. If you had a fingerprint oh, okay. and you had a question, you had to send it to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there was even fax communication in 1983. If there was fax communication, it was not sufficient to quickly accomplish identifying somebody through their fingerprints. Okay, so... They had to probably receive clear pictures of fingerprint cards. Right, right. So you had to snail mail that shit. Um, but, uh, and it, you know, nothing, it, there was computerization, but it was in the infancy, but it was in early infancy stage. Correct. Correct. So, um, you know, now I think, you know, if I, if I get pulled over by NOPD and I give them, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm a criminal and I have fingerprints through the system and I give them my sister's name and she's got no record, they're going to take my fingerprint and they're going to figure, you're not her, you're you're this person. Right. Within minutes. Yeah, like I said, in 1983, it, right, exactly. <laughs> they come in. Um, so you want to start off by telling us your real name? But um, so that was, that was uh, his arrest. And now... San Bernardino authorities, in their defense, they're criticized a lot for a, quote, rush to judgment, unquote. But Uh when you have someone who walks away from a prison and you have evidence in a house that the person has been hiding out in that house, and then you have a murder in a house very nearby and a car stolen... I don't think it's unreasonable to think the escaped prisoner did it. Yeah, I, I don't find that at all unreasonable, irrespective of the race of the victims or the escapee. Uh, but of course, race, ha- you know, race came into play. Oh, um, it always does. The initial bulletins put out by San Bernardino County were based on early statements in the hospital given by a traumatized grievously injured Josh who although he could not speak communicated to officers that he thought three men who had come looking for work earlier in the evening had done this right he he said uh, Josh told emergency room workers that it was the murders were committed by three or four white men right deputies well no his recollections? He said, well, I think what happened is, um, of course, he couldn't really communicate. It was several days before I think he could speak. But I think right. what happened is he said three 
Mexican men came looking for work. Maybe they did this. But that was a child with, he has a hatchet wound in his head. His throat has been cut. He's lost a lot of blood. Uh, He's in the emergency room. Doctors are trying to save his life. Um, You know, he's not going to know. And when you have head injuries, there's, you know, there's a, a level of amnesia that happens where you might have a head injury or a car accident and have a head injury, and the last thing you remember is dinner two nights before. And everything else after that is just gone. It's blank. So I've got a couple questions here. Mm -hmm. Explain to me the blonde hairs that were found in Jessica's hand. Um, Just because I want to play devil's advocate. (laughs) Mitochondrial DNA testing was done, but that is the subject of part two. Oh, okay, cool. Go part two. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, so Cooper, anyway, they put out a bolo for the car with three white or Hispanic males. And that's what the bolo said, okay. white or Hispanic. And then... Now, on June 9th, they realized it was Kevin Cooper. They tracked down the other two escapees, and they eliminated them. Now, they looked at them John as well. Now, kind of change his story, though? Because it's interesting, because Donald then says a social worker, he's a social worker who interviewed Josh. He says that Josh had not only identified three attackers, but specifically stated they weren't at Mexican or African-American. So uh, did his story change a few times? Well, I think, you know, I'm not really 100% sure. I think the police did, in a way, kind of treat Josh with kit gloves. But uh-huh. he did work with a with a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I think it was through her that eventually when he talked about what happened, he described the sequence of everybody going in the rooms at different times. Right. Uh, separately. And, you know, for example, he when he and Chris went, Jessica's dead in the hallway. And he sees his mom and his dad on the floor. Um. And then hearing Chris screaming while he's hiding somewhere um and when he described things he said he not they right and then during one point he described seeing a man with his back to josh standing by his mother mm-hmm and he also talked about seeing a puff of hair. Now, this is with the psychologist. Right. Um, and, you know, Cooper's defense had, there was an interview with Josh where the defense and the prosecutor questioned Josh. Josh was not called to testify at the trial. Uh, they they kind of did a deposition of Josh. 
on video uh-huh. that would be played at trial. Um, mm-hmm. Frankly, what Josh said first, what he said second, what he said third, his identification of one person, and he's never said, or at least prior to Cooper's post-conviction and Josh becoming an adult, he never said it was Kevin Cooper. There are there are claims right. that he saw Kevin Cooper on the news and said that wasn't a guy. Mm-hmm. But Josh's descriptions for what they're worth are corroborated by a lot of evidence. Okay. And so... I, to say Josh identified three men, well, if three men had committed the murders, why were all the victims found in one room? If three people had committed those murders, the Ryans would have died in their room, Jessica would have died in her room, Josh and Chris would have died in Josh's room. Right, absolutely. And the sequence Josh describes, he never describes seeing more than one person. And the sequence fits with one person, not three. So, yeah. um, but, uh, and part two is kind of sort of more into the defense uh, theories and the evidence that kind of refutes them. <laughs> okay. Right now, he's just been arrested and returned to San Bernardino County, where he's charged yeah. with four counts of first-degree murder. In, in California, it's first-degree, not capital. Mm-hmm. And one count of attempted first-degree murder for the attack on Josh. Right, right. So, so. It doesn't, he doesn't stay in San Bernardino long. He gets transferred, or the trial gets transferred to San Diego County, correct? Pretty quickly? Correct. Um, the Yeah, the trial was, the, the venue was changed at Cooper's request. Um, let me see, I have some notes. Ah, here I have them. Um the trial was moved at Cooper's request in okay, here it is. Uh, well, I have that in there. Um, yeah, the trial was moved at Cooper's request. I think there was a preliminary hearing where um, in San Bernardino County. And then it was after, some point after the preliminary hearing in San Bernardino County, that venue for the trial was changed. And, um, right. So, uh, but uh, also at the preliminary hearing, the evidence against uh, Cooper was presented. Okay. So, um, and, and like I said, there's evidence that ties the lease house the Ryan house and the car all together and right. ties Cooper to each of those locations. 
So, well, before we get into um, that, I believe this would be a good time to go ahead and take a break, pause, okay. digest all this information, and we'll be right back. Okay. All right, cool. Um, sounds good. We'll be right back with more Clear and Convincing right here on Talk Radio 49. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Subohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Subohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Subohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. All right, we're back. Michael, yes, we stop are. playing with the mute yes, button. <laughs> yes, I, we're back. <laughs> we're back. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So, I do want to take a moment to uh, go ahead and plug some stuff before we hop back in. I want you guys, if you oh, guys perfect. are listening, go ahead and. Go over to the uh, Facebook page, like up Talk Radio 49. You'll see everything we have to offer as far as our weekly schedule on there, as well as uh, I believe we have a website, correct, Lisa? We have a WordPress site, clearandconvincing.wordpress. It's clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. Right. And then obviously hit up Lisa uh, on Twitter at Lisa Ann, correct? O'Brien L. Ann. O'Brien L. Ann. See, this is why we (laughs) do these things, ladies and gentlemen. And then, of course, you can hit us up at Talk Radio 49 on Twitter and follow us there as well. But, uh, I, I mean, we're just now getting into the meat and taters of this thing, and we're getting into the case as far as the uh, the actual trial of uh, Mr. Cooper. And, you know, it's getting moved over to San Diego. Obviously, that's pretty uh, – you got to assume that that was coming. And the reason why I say that, I mean, that's pretty standard practice. 
you know, minus OJ. OJ's really the only glaring time I can imagine for a high-profile case where a lot of people are killed. It's a mass murder or something. And uh, yeah. it wasn't moved out of the county, which uh, could be something we could talk about at another time because I just thought about that. Why wasn't OJ's case or trial moved? But anyway... Uh, well, you know, uh, actually, change of venue is up to the defendant. The defendant has to request the change. Really? It's not OJ done by a court. So O.J. Simpson didn't want to to digress a little. O.J. Simpson, because the D.A., the L.A. County D.A., elected to try the case downtown rather than in uh-huh. Santa Monica, OJ was perfectly happy with downtown LA. I remember that now that you say that. If the prosecution had wanted to move, uh, you know, I think Barry, uh, I think Johnny Cochran's head would have exploded. Yeah, because they were making a big deal about (laughs) the uh, jury. And the LAPD, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, the Rodney King trial was in the officers were tried for the Rodney King beating in Simi Valley and of course were right. not convicted. Right, right. And so, so Right. We find out well plus OJ OJ was a cocky bastard and thought everybody loved him, so you know. Correct. And I mean, I guess Correct. at that point back then, you know, there were a lot of people that still, you know, idolized him. So he, you know, figured he had a pretty good shot at it. Correct. Now, I I went through my notes, and um, the preliminary hearing was in November of 1983, probably through November uh-huh. and December. The change of venue right. motion of the defense was granted March 13th, 1984. Apparently, the appellate court and the Supreme Court weighed in, and because of the size of San Bernardino County, I think they had San Diego, Los Angeles, and one or two other places as the locations that were similar in demographic to San Bernardino County, and Uh so San Diego County was the one that was chosen, and that was approved by the... Fourth District or Fourth Court of Appeal—I don't know how California, what California calls them. Um, we call them Fourth Circuit, but they might call it Fourth District Court of Appeal, and the California Supreme right. Court. And once they now, approved, how- then the case moved to San Diego in April of 1984. Now, how does that work? Does uh, do they just sit? Uh, do they just sit the dates or the possible venues in front of them and say, here's your choices, or who chooses? Well, different states are going to do it different ways. I think generally the judge will look at, will try to find a venue that is either in the same geographic area of Mm -hmm. the original venue and then we'll also look at the demographics of the new venue so that the 
income, population, uh, racial makeup, uh, industry, and those different demographic factors are not necessarily identical, but similar. Absolutely. So, uh, okay. you know, uh, they they won't move it to um, a county, say, your crime occurs in San Bernardino County, which is relatively populous, uh, several mm-hmm. uh, big, uh, not big cities, but several cities and, and uh, towns. They won't move it to another county that, like out in the desert, where there are one or two towns maybe one city, and then the rest is just, you know, and then the populations are, are smaller in in the less populous counties. But right, I, right. One, one that I'm more familiar with is in West Memphis 3. Uh, uh-huh. What the judge did was that he chose Clay County for uh, Miss Kelly because it's similar, it's similar demographically and in the same judicial district as Crittenden County. And then he chose uh, Craighead County for Eccles and Baldwin because, again, it's in the same uh, judicial district, and it's the same, almost the same demographic makeup, with the exception of the uh, Jonesboro has a major university. Okay. And Crittenden and Clay didn't. Makes sense. So okay, I, I never really knew that that much went into uh, a change of venues type thing. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Correct. And again, it doesn't happen just because it's a high-profile case. The defense has to ask for it, and the defense has to present affidavits from citizens that uh, show that a a fair and impartial jury cannot be picked. In the venue, um, and a lot of times they'll do that through also media articles, and they they have to show what the media saturation of the case was in that in that uh, venue. Um, Dalia DiPolito asked for multiple changes of venue from Palm Beach County, and none of them were granted because. You know they were able to pick fair and impartial juries, although I, I'm sure she would disagree. But um, you know they they were able to pick fair and impartial juries, so it's not a given. Even if you ask for it, it's not a given. But in this case, like I said, you know the defense asked for it. The judge agreed that it was necessary, and that was done. Right. Right. So let's talk about the preliminary hearing. Well, I guess we're going to have to kind of go backwards now that we talk about the change of venue. Let's talk about uh, Diana and some coveralls. All right. Um, on uh, the preliminary hearing, in addition to presenting the state presenting its evidence in support of the charges against Cooper, um, Cooper's defense was able to challenge uh, that evidence and the investigation by bringing up several things that they felt were not handled 
uh, appropriately by investigators and basically leads that were allowed to uh, fall by the wayside in the zeal to put Kevin Cooper on death row. And one of those things was a woman by the name of Diana Roper, or Diane Roper. can't remember if she's Diana or Diane. Um, she was a methamphetamine abuser. She had a boyfriend by the name of Eugene Lee Furrow. And on the night of June 4th, they attended some kind of music festival. And during that festival... Lee decided to tell Diana, it's over. I'm in love with your best friend, Debbie. And so Lee dumped Diana for Debbie. Diana, she did the only thing any self-respecting woman could do. She left his ass at the music festival in DeVore, California. And she went home to Mentone. Right. Uh, so that left Lee having to hitchhike 25 miles back to Mentone uh, with Debbie. And he apparently arrived sometime in the early hours of the morning of June 5th. And got he and Debbie got on his motorcycle and they left and went to San Diego. Um. On June 9th, Diana called San Bernardino Sheriff's Office and said her boyfriend had left behind some bloody coveralls in a closet, and she felt that the coveralls had something to do with the murders of the Ryan family. Uh-oh. Now, to, to give you a little geographic perspective, Mentone, California is 45 miles from Chino Hills. Uh-huh. DeVore, where the music festival was, is 32.8 miles from Chino Hills. Okay. So, you know, I mean, the the, the murders were all over the news. And right. so, so a deputy by the name of Eckley comes out to Diana's house, and he picks up these coveralls, and he talks to Diana and she just says she feels that they were involved and they, the coveralls belonged to her boyfriend, Lee Furrow. Um, he talks to her father, and her father says, well, she told me that she and this group of witches uh, in a trance got information that the coveralls were involved in the murders. So, okay. so I don't know if you're picking up on this. Pardon? Did I hear that correctly? Now she's denying that they were involved? No, no, no. She she went to her deathbed believing that they were involved. Believing that uh-uh. they were involved and actually connecting them to the murders is the challenge. Right. And there's really nothing that connects them. Lee Furrow was left in DeVore, California, 32.8 miles from Chino Hills with no vehicle right. having to hitchhike. A hell of a trip. On the night of June 4th. So it's kind of unlikely that he would be involved. He could have been involved in the murders. And at the music festival, he was not wearing coveralls. 
Right. I think she said he was, but I think other people that were interviewed, and this is another thing, in response to Diana Furrow's, Diana Roper, uh, Roper's statements, they interviewed Lee Furrow. They interviewed Debbie Glasgow. They interviewed people that were with them at the music festival. And he wasn't wearing coveralls. Now, she claims he came home the morning of June 5th wearing coveralls. But, again, multiple witnesses say that's not the case. Right. So uh, it's very unlikely that the coveralls had anything to do with the murder, Diana Roper's feelings aside. It's not, it's not a, uh, it's not, it's one of them things that, you know, it's kind of, kind of murky. It's kind of impossible to connect. So, Correct. what about the Canyon Corral? Okay. Um, now, let me go on one more thing about the coveralls. Deputy Eckley oh, did contact the homicide, and he did uh-huh. say he picked up these coveralls. Witness says they might have been had something to do, been involved in the murders, or, or might have belonged to someone involved in the murders. Uh, homicide did not follow up and did not come pick up the coveralls, and the coveralls were never subjected to any testing. And in December of 1983, uh, Deputy Eckley destroyed the coveralls. Um he had apparently testified at the preliminary hearing regarding his destruction of the coveralls as well. And he may have even destroyed the coveralls shortly before being summoned to appear at the preliminary hearing. Because Kevin Cooper had an investigator that was going around getting information and doing a pretty good job of it as well. Um, and then a little bit of information on Lee Furrow. Lee, unfortunately, in the early 70s, got, I don't know, tangled up with a guy by the name of Clarence Ray Allen. And Clarence Ray Allen had committed multiple armed robberies. Uh, he was the head of a little gang that committed these armed robberies. And a young woman by the name of Mary Sue Kitts apparently told two people about one of Alan's robberies. Alan ordered Lee Furrow to kill Mary Sue, and Lee Furrow did kill her and disposed of her body. And she's never been found. Um, He was caught. He testified against Allen, and Allen was sentenced to life in prison for Mary Sue Kitt's murder. That was in 1977. Uh, Furrow testified he got a deal, and so he served um, not a very long sentence because he was out of prison by 1982, early 1983. that in mind, it'll come into play later. In part two. Right. You still there, Michael? 
Okay, yes, you're digesting you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. A little bit. A little bit. And, All right. And it's a lot of it's a lot of twists and turns in this thing. Mhm. Yeah. Uh, now the Canyon Corral Bar, um, the night of June fourth, multiple patrons and uh, a workers at the bar, bartender, a manager who was there as a patron that night, they observed three men in the bar. Um, The general description was they were younger men in their 20s. They were all white. Um, One of them was blonde. They were wearing T-shirts and jeans. Some people thought that they were military and I don't know how far there's a Marine base. There was a Marine base at El Toro. I don't know how far that would be from San Bernardino. Uh, I'm sure there was a Naval Air Station not far away, uh, which also may have been their Marines. Marines end up at Naval Air Stations as well. Uh, But, you know, some people thought they were military. Um, nobody was wearing coveralls. None of these witnesses identified Lee Furrow as one of the men. And none of these witnesses observed any blood anywhere on the men. Um, They came in about 9 or 9.30, stayed 15 or 20 minutes, left, and then came back later that night and were refused service because they were uh, already sufficiently uh, inebriated. And they left the bar without any problem. So that was, that's pretty much the Canyon Corral bar. Three strangers, young men in the bar the night of the Ryan murders. Michael, did I blow your mind? Okay, I think Michael's having some problems here. Uh, I'm just going to keep talking to myself. Michael, when you come back online, you can uh, uh, speak up. Um The next thing we had some other confessions that were uh, made. Um, A gentleman by the name of Wisely reported that a uh, fellow prisoner in Vacaville confessed to being involved in the murders. That gentleman's name was Kenneth Kuhn, K-O-O-N. And uh, the story that Mr. Kuhn told was prompted probably by smoking some pot. And um, when detectives interviewed Wisely, they then interviewed Kuhn, and Kuhn said, I never confessed to anything. Kuhn knew of Lee Furrow, but did not know him personally. And Kuhn at that time was the boyfriend of Diana Roper. So 
some very interesting connections uh, going on. And then we're getting to the trial, and I wish Michael would come back because I really don't like talking to myself. Um, The prosecution was able to present evidence that tied Kevin Cooper to the Lee's house, the Ryan house, and the Ryan's stolen station wagon. Uh, They first had fingerprints from Cooper in the Lee's house. Uh, Cooper made two calls to Yolanda Jackson in Los Angeles, the first one on June 3rd at 12.17 a.m., lasted 110 minutes. The second one at 2.26 a.m., also on June 3rd, lasted four minutes. Cooper also called uh, Diane Williams in Pittsburgh. The first call to Diane was made at 11.46 a.m. on June 3rd, and then the second call was made at 7.53 p.m. on June 4th, 1983, and that lasted for 34 minutes. And that would be about an hour before the Ryans returned home from the barbecue uh, that they attended the night of June 4th. Um, Cooper told Yolanda he had walked out of prison and she refused to help him, Mm -hmm. wanted him to turn himself in. Hello, Michael, welcome back. Sorry. Where did you go? My phone (laughs) fell off for a second. Oh, wait, this it was more than a second. I'm sitting here talking to myself, Michael. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just teasing you. Um, <laughs> technical difficulties. But at least this time with the technical difficulties, I wasn't silent. Or going, Michael, this Michael, Michael. <laughs> so... And Cooper had told Diane Williams that he was released from prison and she said he could, she couldn't send him any money. And so this is, like I said, he's just been told by Diane Williams at 8 o'clock on June 4th, I can't send you any money. You're on your own. So, um, and what also probably prompted Cooper's desire to get the hell away from the lease house was Virginia Lee's visit to the house on the morning of June 4th. Now, when on the 6th, deputies did come in to do kind of a walkthrough of the house to make sure nobody was in the house. But they weren't, they hadn't connected it to the murders and they didn't know that it was where Cooper had been hiding. Uh, In fact, on June 6th, they hadn't even identified Cooper as a potential or actual suspect. I think they, he's a potential suspect because an escaped prisoner, they're going to be a good suspect in a murder nearby. But they had not named him or, you know, put out a be on the lookout or anything like that for him in connection with the murder. Um, when they did connect the lease house to the murder, uh, they found a bloodstained khaki green button in the bedroom that Cooper slept in that closet. Um, And it was identical to the buttons on prison field jackets, which Cooper admitted to having when he testified at the trial. They also found a blood-stained rope in the closet of the Bilbia bedroom, 
where Cooper had been sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found Viceroy cigarette butts, and Bilbia did not smoke. Uh, they found Rollwright tobacco in a white box in the closet. Uh, in the 1980s, in prison, you could buy manufactured cigarettes or you could have free loose tobacco and I guess rolling papers from the prison in order to maintain your smoking habit. And Cooper had roll right tobacco and I believe he admitted to having and using roll right tobacco. Um, they also found some burrs in the bedroom closet in the Bilbia bedroom. And those burrs were consistent with burrs found on plants around the lease and Ryan houses. So they could have been picked up by Cooper when he was making his way to the lease house. They could have been picked up by Cooper in between the lease and Ryan homes or on his return to the Ryan home, to the lease home from the Ryans after the murders. Um, They also, I talked about the luminol finding the trace of blood in the shower and Mm -hmm. the footprint and foot impressions. Um, They also had, uh, as as I said earlier, the hatchet was identified by residents of the lease house as belonging to the lease house. And the hatchet had been found in the weeds leading from Mm -hmm. the Ryan home out of the area toward the highway or the freeway. Right. Um, and it looked like it had been thrown. There was a an indentation in a pole, a fence pole, where the hatchet was found. It looked like it had struck the pole and then fallen to the ground. Um, like they and then hit the pole they, and dropped it? Correct, correct. Um, he, okay. wasn't, he wasn't a good hatchet thrower. And... Um, then they also found blood consistent with Josh in the house. The hatchet sheath was found in the bedroom, and there were butt knives and ice picks missing from the house. So uh, there okay. was also a shoe impression from uh, uh, tennis shoes that were uh, sold by the manufacturer to institutions, the Navy, the hospital, the mental hospitals, state hospitals, and state prisons mm-hmm. in California. They were not sold retail. Uh, they were in a catalog, but the as we'll get into later on, well, we can get into it now, the uh, StrideWrite was the manufacturer. It was ProCAD Dudes was the name of the shoe. And right. those were sold by StrideWrite. They weren't sold in retail stores. They were in a catalog, but StrideWrite personnel testified at the trial that no sales of those shoes were made retail. And they had the purchase orders from, from California uh, Institute for Men of the ProCAD dude tennis shoes. So, um, and then in the Ryan house, there was a partial bloody shoe print on a sheet in the master bedroom and a partial impression from a shoe print 
on a spa cover outside the master bedroom. On the hallway opposite the master bedroom door near where Jessica's body was found, there was a drop of blood that was not consistent with any of the victims. Mm -hmm. And was consistent with an African-American and was consistent with Kevin Cooper. Uh, it was it was subjected to to multiple types of tests, although it was a small amount. And uh, some of those tests were chosen by Cooper's expert, Dr. Edward Blake, uh, and none of them excluded Cooper. All of them included Cooper. Okay. And then uh, under Jessica's nightgown, there were burrs, similar to the burrs that were found in the closet at the lease house. So, I mean, there's quite a bit of evidence, and it's not circumstantial. Well, you know, it's, it's circumstantial, but it's strong circumstantial because... Cooper denied ever being in the Ryan house. Cooper denied right. stealing the Ryan vehicle. So Which anything, even one one piece of this there. evidence, right, one piece of this evidence in, you know, the Ryan house would have been sufficient to refute his denial of being in the Ryan house. But there's overwhelming uh, then, evidence that he was there. Um, and then the Ryan car, because that's the third scene, we have blood stains consistent with one or more of the victims. Now, the blood stains, it is kind of strange. I believe there were blood stains found on the driver's side, uh, driver's seat, and then blood stains were found in the back seat. But it's also possible that after the murders, Cooper got in the car, threw things that were bloody into the back seat of the car, uh, right. so I, I mean he he some but the the blood stains is well, I think three areas where there were blood stains that were consistent with the victims, one or more victims, and these were mixed these were mixed blood stains, not you know, Doug Ryan's blood or or Peggy Ryan's blood or Josh Ryan's blood. These were mixed, or Chris Hughes. So, um, and then they also found hair consistent, a hair consistent with Cooper in the vehicle. They found hand-rolled cigarette butts and a, a hand-rolled cigarette butt and a manufactured cigarette butt and loose roll-right tobacco. Mm-hmm. And when they tested the uh, cigarette butts, the saliva was consistent with a non-secretor, and Cooper was a non-secretor. Right. Okay. So, so yeah. that. Right. There. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, and, I, I don't quite see anything that could be possible that 
he can get out of it. But, I mean, he definitely tried, to say the least. He did mount a defense, and he even testified. Correct. What, Correct. He did, again, he did testify. Like this seems like one and, of the cases where you want your defendant to shut up. Correct. Um, and, you know, I I have found the transcripts for the testimony online. Uh, I started reading it and uh, kind of had to stop and, and work on other things to do this show and, and next week's show. But uh, at some point in time, I'm going to finish reading his testimony. Uh, but, you know, the little bit I read, he, you know, he admits to stealing somebody's jacket in the prison. Right. Because he didn't get a jacket and he wanted a jacket or needed a jacket. He admits to stealing a lady's purse right before he crossed over into Mexico uh, to get money to be able to flee to Mexico. Um, you know, he stole clothes from the lease house. He admitted that. He admitted to being in the lease house. But, um, so, and then, you know, there's a, there's a lot of forensic evidence as well, all tied in with these, you know, the evidence that I cited before. Uh, the shoe prints were consistent with the ProCAD Dude tennis shoes. Uh, and the prosecution, like I said, was able to establish they weren't sold in retail stores in in California. They were available at institutions. Um, you right. know, I mean, if you were in the U.S. Navy, uh, going, you know, basic training or SEAL training in Coronado, you probably had ProCAD do tennis shoes during that era. Um, mm-hmm. If you were in the Marines and and uh, got, getting to do your boot camp in San Diego instead of Paris Island, you probably had ProCAD dude tennis shoes during that era. Right. Um, and that was, like I said, that was established through the testimony of uh, StrideWrite, I think executives, salesmen, managers, and uh, purchase orders and documentary records from StrideWrite. So it, it's not like the prosecutor got up and said, yeah, these, look, look, these aren't available in retail stores. The prosecution really put together a strong, strong case because they, um, they did go that extra mile by getting StrideWrite to the trial. And then oh, yeah. also um, the uh, A41, like I said, it, it uh, excluded all of the victims. They did electrophoresis testing, which distinguishes between enzyme types. And A41 was consistent with Cooper's blood, consistent with an African-American, and consistent with a rare EAP type called RB. Mm-hmm. And Cooper was type RB, EAP type RB. So uh, some uh, Cooper had an expert, and some of the testing that was performed in an effort to eliminate Cooper did not eliminate him. Okay. So where is his, um, uh, what's his criticism of the investigation? 
Well, you know, the typical rush to judgment, they destroyed. Uh, one of the criticisms was that apparently the DA came into the Ryan house on June 5th or June 6th and had the bedroom and the hallway dismantled and carried off to store in some warehouse. Um, I haven't found anything official uh, that really articulates it, but that's the impression that I get reading some of the commentary on different articles that have been published about Cooper over the years. Um, But we have to remember, Cooper was not arrested until July 30th, 1983. Right. Almost, you know, uh, two months later, I believe, seven weeks. Seven weeks. So, uh, you know, I could understand if Cooper had been arrested driving the vehicle within an hour or two of the murders, then the DA had gone in and said, dismantle the scene and we're going to store it in a warehouse. But, um, you know, that's not how it happened. So he didn't have a defense attorney. He didn't have any experts. He didn't have, you know, nobody knew who he was. He had his own crazy Um, (laughs) mother. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, more, and it's not crazy. It's more manipulative. True. Um, he, uh, but he that was one of the things. And he, you know, claimed a rush of judgment. He claimed Josh described three attackers and uh, three white attackers. And there was a T-shirt that had been found on the side of the road, and it was never tested for blood, or the blood on it was never tested. And nothing was really done to rule it in or out as being connected to the murders. And during the defense case, the defense actually entered that T-shirt as evidence. Um, And guess what? What? It comes into play in part two. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it does. And, uh, you know, the the defense brought in the witnesses about the men at the Canyon Corral bar. Uh, they had mm-hmm. witnesses who claimed to have seen the Ryan station wagon with three white males in it on the night of the murders. Uh, they uh, brought in the witnesses about destruction of the coveralls. They could not have Diana Roper testify mm-hmm. because her credibility was pretty low to begin with. Um, Right. One of the arguments made was she had been a reliable drug informant. And as we talked about with the McDonald case, a reliable drug informant does not necessarily make a reliable witness in a murder Mm -hmm. investigation for a whole lot of reasons. Right. Um, They brought in, you know, the destruction of the coveralls to raise reasonable doubt. They criticized the forensic testing done by the San Bernardino Crime Lab. They criticized, um, they had an expert by the name of John Thornton, who's actually pretty well respected, who criticized uh, problems with the manner the case was investigated. Uh, And then 
Dr. Blake also testified about problems with uh, testing of some of the evidence prior to his involvement. Uh, and there was an issue with the interpretation of the EAP type um, that, of course, the defense tried to capitalize on, but unfortunately weren't able to really capitalize. It's apparently telling RB from B is uh, pretty difficult to do. And it's it's a visual, you're interpreting a visual, um, you know, it's kind of like DNA. You're you're interpreting something in a gel or interpreting a photograph of something in a gel. So, um, So, So that was, and he had, I mean, he did have a vigorous defense. And I think, again, I think what hurt him more than anything else was his testimony. Right. I mean, let's be honest here. In this case, you want, like I said, your defendant to just shut up. Right. Don't do anything exactly. to hurt yourself. And, you know, right. if he would have had a lawyer, the lawyer probably, that probably would have never happened. He did have a lawyer. Okay. I he did he have a lawyer. No, 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 no. He was not, no, he was not pro se. He had a lawyer by the name of David Nagus, N-E-G-U-S. And he had an investigator by the name of Forbush. And they both did, like I said. Now, the one criticism I would have with Nagus is that he did not have a second chair. Mm -hmm. That was not the standard at the time. I think it was in the early 90s that when you're when you're dealing with a capital case you always have to have two attorneys and a mitigation specialist. But uh like I said Negus Negus did it on his own. I would criticize him that's the only thing I think that we that I really could uh get behind is that he did not have a second chair and should have Right, right. But that's one of the things that Cooper really hasn't made much of a, a an issue of. He's raised ineffective assistance of counsel as to other aspects, but he's never really tried to raise the ineffective assistance by not getting help. I don't know whether that would be successful because like I said, it wasn't that wasn't the standard. In 1983. Well, but, Lisa, we're running up against it here a little bit. We're almost running out of time. Uh, I know. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the verdict. Obviously, we know that he was found guilty. Let's talk about the verdict and the sentencing. Uh, Correct. Once again, we talk about uh, California being a very uh, liberal state. Uh was it hard to get the death penalty in this case? I mean, there's a lot of reason why there should have been a death penalty in this case. Right. Um, there was, you know, I'm not privy, privy to the jury deliberations in the uh, guilt phase or the penalty phase. Uh, 
Um, the jury did deliberate for some time after uh, it got the case. They began deliberating on the 7th of February, and they didn't have a verdict till the 19th. However, the, the trial started in October of 1984, and the jury didn't get the case until February of 1985, so it was a lengthy case. And a lot of witnesses testified they had several hundred pieces of evidence entered. So I think the jury was doing their job to carefully consider everything that they had gotten during this lengthy trial. Uh, the penalty phase of sentencing, he was sentenced by the jury on March 1st. So the penalty phase probably was a few days toward the end of February. And the judge accepted the jury's recommendation in May of 85, and he sentenced Cooper to death. Because at that time, the jury was making a recommendation, not necessarily a sentence. Right. And the right. judge could either accept the recommendation or could sentence... Kudos uh, to the for jury example, if a jury... Uh, if a jury recommended life, the judge didn't have a choice. But if a jury recommended death, the judge could sentence them to life right. without the possibility of well, I mean, Well, I mean, good on the jury, number one, for being able to pay attention during this whole thing. My attention span isn't that mm -hmm. long, so, I mean, kudos to them for that. <laughs> and then also, uh, kudos to them for coming back with this because, you know, I think this is your – typical death penalty case where, you know, he definitely, he definitely uh, freaking deserved it, you know, post-conviction. Uh, let's talk about his, the first state post-conviction and the direct appeal. What uh, okay. came out of that? Well, the, the direct appeal is a great resource for the evidence at trial, the California Supreme Court, because this would have been an automatic appeal uh, to the California right. Supreme Court, they went through and uh, in a pretty substantial opinion, uh, detailed the evidence and testimony at the trial. And it gives you a really good picture of everything, including Cooper's escape from CIM. And, oh, wow. Uh, so they they did affirm his sentence. Um, he basically, I think, uh, he didn't have a lot of substantial issues on appeal. Uh, there was an issue where the defense wanted to test evidence and the state would not allow it or the judge would not allow it. But um, there wasn't anything really landmark or groundbreaking. Um, they uh, claimed that his right to cross-examine witnesses was uh, uh, restricted by the judge, uh, and the 
you know, it's a lengthy opinion, but uh, the court on reviewing everything did not find that he complaint had any merit. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, 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 uh, we go directly from the state to the federal, right? The habeas? No. There was a state post-conviction claim in California, and it was decided uh-huh. by the uh, by the California Supreme Court. Um, he filed a state post-conviction. He filed a habeas claim uh-huh. uh, in federal court, but that was stayed while he went back to California state court. Um, he right because in a command. Yeah, and then on February nineteenth, nineteen ninety six, which is eleven years after his initial conviction, the California Supreme Supreme Court denied uh, state habeas review or denied a state habeas claim. Uh, Unfortunately, none of that stuff is available online. I would love to read that, but California is um, just not as progressive as some states. Pardon? Kind of tight-lipped on that stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, getting copies from courts is a great revenue source. And so I can understand why a lot of courts don't want to put everything online for free. Um, Mm -hmm. It's frustrating sometimes because, you know, in Florida, I can go on the the docket for Dahlia DiPolito's case and download everything. Right. And it doesn't cost me a penny which is wonderful, I love. But, uh, and San Diego, no offense to San Diego, but I think it's kind of bogus. You have to send them $15. Oh, Lord. Or $25 before they'll even look. And that goes toward whatever you want copied. But if you don't know the date of something and you want to dock it, you have to send them $15 and then they'll tell you, pages their docket is and you might have to send them more money. So um oh. I I wish their their trial courts and their appellate courts would, you know, kind of come into the twenty first century. And I've had multiple clerks when I speak to them on the phone say, I uh-huh. wish we put this online. I'm tired of these phone calls. Well yeah, I mean but then again, the cost of living so high in California, you got to make it some way. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. But they have high they have high taxes, so I think the court systems are doing just fine right. from them taxes. Right. So, so um, and then the first federal habeas was denied in 1997. Okay. And, and then was does a, it go quiet until the DNA test? On uh, in 2001. Um, yeah, I'm I'm getting there. Um, gotta slow down. Uh, the okay. the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the most liberal courts in the United States, a court for which the U.S. Supreme Court has a special reverse stamp, uh, did not grant habeas corpus relief to Kevin Cooper, 
with claims of uh, a lot. His criticism was claims of planting evidence, tampering with evidence, concealing evidence, uh, all that. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2001 could not give him a, a reversal of the district court and grant of habeas relief. That's got to tell you something. Right. Uh, but in in 2001, Cooper uh, requested DNA testing, and uh, it was granted, I believe, that the prosecutor and the state, uh, the prosecutor and the defense came up with an agreement to allow certain evidence to be tested. It wasn't necessarily all of the evidence that Cooper may have wanted tested, but mm-hmm. uh, they agreed to testing of the hand-rolled cigarette butt right. that saliva was uh, was said to be from a non-secreter like Cooper. They agreed to testing of the hatchet. They agreed to testing of uh, the T-shirt that was not used as evidence against Cooper, but had been entered at the trial by the defense. Right. And then they agreed to testing of the uh, button that was found in the lease house. Right. And it pretty much backfired on them because none of it exonerated them. That is correct. And as far as far off the path as we meandered tonight, we still managed to come back to Kevin Cooper. And this is where we break and we'll pick this up next week and we'll discuss the meat and potatoes and carrots and peas of <laughs> Kevin Cooper's post-conviction challenges after DNA testing was requested and granted uh-huh. pursuant to an agreement with the state in 2001. And that was in May of 2001. Well, and I can't wait to hear some of this because, you know, some of these are interesting claims. You know, you talk about the blonde hairs that I brought up earlier and things like that. It'll be interesting, Correct. you know, to play a little bit of devil's advocate in this situation and uh, see what the uh, what the story is on all of this because you know there is some you know like I mentioned about the uh, the gentleman coming out the uh, I forget what they're called the uh, uh, social worker coming out saying that uh, Josh said certain things and so on and so forth so it'll be interesting to see some of these uh, post conviction claims in a week I, I mean I can't wait. <laughs> so, well, I guess that's the, we're 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 at the end of the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L Ann. Join us next week for episode 13, State of California versus Kevin Cooper. 
In part two, we're going to be talking about Cooper's challenge to the DNA results from the testing conducted in 2001, as well as additional testing conducted on hairs, Cooper's renewed claims of evidence manipulation and tampering, and his allegations that he was framed for the Ryan Hughes murders. So I hope everybody will join us. And Michael, before we go, I need to get on you. You need to send me a biography. Okay. Because there's no biography for you at the WordPress page. Okay, I will work. This on is that your homework for next. This is your homework. Absolutely, I will get it out to you as soon as I can. All right, all right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Join us next week. Thank you, everybody. Good night.